Our readings this morning, again, uh, the New Testament will precede the Old Testament this Sunday. And so we turn to the book of Hebrews in the 13th chapter for our New Testament lesson this morning. The opening eight verses, and there it is written, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing... Some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness, Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The Old Testament reading for today comes to us from the book of Jeremiah in the second chapter, beginning at verse 4 and continuing through verse 13. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, In a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives, I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more, I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Cross to the coast of Cyprus and look, send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. 
Earlier this week, as I was doing some reading and research for this morning's sermon, I happened to come across a fairly new little book aimed at being a resource to congregations that are (coughs) struggling with how to adapt to this new normal that we find ourselves in in the the pandemic era. It's entitled The Post-Quarantine Church. Six urgent challenges and opportunities that will determine the future of your congregation. Well, somebody in that publishing house certainly has a flair for dramatic marketing. Sounds like a must-read or else sort of writing. Well, the author, Tom Rayner, has experience writing self-help books for the church, this being now right about his 30th, and he has experience in the church, having been, according to his biography, dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the former chief operating officer of Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also served as a pastor or an interim pastor at 14 churches. Pretty sound credentials. Now, I don't recall having read any of his past works, but the titles and the descriptions of them make them sound like practical manifestos to create and to sustain successful churches. Now, this is the sort of thing, in my experience, that most ministers in training did not get during their seminary experience. Combined with his impressive background in missions, I have no doubt that Dr. Rayner's insights have proven valuable for a number of church leaders and congregations over the years. In fact, were I to hazard a guess, I would say that at least somewhere along the line, and perhaps somewheres along the line, his suggestions would sound an awful lot like the words used by the author of the book of Hebrews in the 13th chapter, the passage that we heard read again a bit earlier this morning in the service, noble and helpful reminders about what it means to be Christian, especially as it relates to what it means to live as a Christian, different from the look of the world, yet engaged with it nonetheless. Such strategies are akin to those espoused by others from a variety of Protestant traditions, including among several missiologists in our own Reformed camp. I don't disagree with what these people have said and written, and I think that most of these people are on to some things that are helpful. But yes, here it comes, I don't think this addresses the root of the problem. We can, and in many cases, we rightly ought to make any number of changes to the way that we live as the church, be it in worship, in community, in mission. Yet, I think the most fundamental obstruction to the church's surviving and thriving is that which was the focus of our Old Testament reading this morning. In the days of the prophet Jeremiah, the people of God were struggling 
The barbarians were threatening and then they were at the gate. The people were forced to flee the countryside. So a famine was increasingly severe. And all the while, the ruling officials were fiddling. Here, toward the very outset of his prophetic witness, Jeremiah has a diagnostic word from the Lord. The health of the Hebrew nation is rather poor. And the source of their malady is not the Babylonians out there who had come to subdue and to seize and to conquer them. No, the trouble was not from without, but from within. In our own day, the people of God are also struggling. There are a host of indicators that point to the health of the church in the West, at least, as being rather poor. We can point the finger at a number of potential culprits for this, but even as one finger is pointing out this way or, or that way, well, three others are, are pointing right back at us. As with the Israelites in the days of Jeremiah, the truth is that the most significant troubles that we face do not lie without, they are to be found within. As troublesome as this Old Testament text is, I think it can be just as constructive if we allow it to be. If we are willing to stop our fiddling and our whistling and our pretending that things are peachy in the church and with those in the church and we confess and repent and turn back to the Lord, then I think this text is doing us a service. Like hydrogen peroxide on a physical cut, there may be some temporary discomfort that goes along with the holy healing process as we're forced to take a long, hard look at what we think, what we believe, what we say, and what we do. To what extent, church, have we changed our God for things or idols that are not gods at all? To what extent, church, have we changed the glory we've been gifted for, for something that does not profit? To what extent, church, have we committed two parallel evils, that of forsaking the holy God, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for ourselves, cracked cisterns, that can hold no water. I'm prompted to ask these questions not on account of a particular person or congregation or scandalous church headline, though they do make the rounds, but rather I'm prompted to ask these questions as a challenge to us of self-reflection. I am disappointed that I can see parallels between where we are right now as Christians and where our Jewish ancestors were way back in Jeremiah's time. The way their story played out was through plenty of sorrow and pain and suffering, and much of it was self-inflicted and potentially avoidable. My prayer is that thousands of years of covenantal wisdom later, we might be able to avoid repeating the same mistakes of the past before they lead to our misfortune as well. 
If numbers are used as a key metric for gauging the health of an organization, and I'm not saying whether they should be or shouldn't be, both on the macro and the micro levels, the church appears to be in decline. Our own congregation right here has steadily decreased in numbers and in attendees since the days of Reverend Bischoff. Since that time, our denomination has been split multiple times, and the total number of members across the country has shrunk by two-thirds just in the years since I graduated from high school. Trust me, that wasn't that long ago. The wider church, too, has seen marked decreases in affiliation that have been accelerating over recent decades. A bunch of smart people from a bunch of smart backgrounds have also noted these trends and have been asking questions. Questions like, why are these things happening? And what can be done to slow or stop or even reverse these trends? Which brings me back to folks like Tom Rayner, who have given these things plenty of attention in recent years. And yet, even within his own denomination, this great falling away from the church is evident. While his writings and those of countless others have helped certain people and certain congregations in a variety of ways, the systemic problem has remained unaddressed. And this is likely in part because adaptive change is much easier for people to accept than systemic change is. In other words, it's far easier to come to an agreement on a new arrangement of the deck chairs to make the Titanic a more appealing place for people to come and relax and be comfortable than it is to reach a consensus on how to go about fixing the gaping hole in the hull into which all that seawater is pouring that's causing the ship to be dragged beneath the waves. I was chatting this past week with a colleague in ministry from another denomination who was recently fired by a congregation after he had served them for about three years as their pastor, in large part because he was trying to get them to address just this sort of a difficult question. Enough of that congregation was not willing to take such a critical look at themselves, and it wound up leading to his dismissal. So yes, I know that this sort of work can be hard, but I also recall G.K. Chesterton saying that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Which, again, brings me back to a consideration of those nagging questions. To what extent, church, have we changed our God for things or ideals that are not God's at all? And to what extent, church, have we changed the glory we've been gifted for in exchange for something that doesn't profit us? To what extent have we committed two parallel evils? That is, one, forsaking the holy God, the fountain of living water, and secondly, dug out cisterns of our own, cracked cisterns that can hold no water.
I'm not asking that you write an essay response and put it in the offering plate or hand it to me on the way out later this morning or slip it to me at the picnic later this afternoon. I'm just suggesting that for the good of the church and individually the members of it, that we take some time and put in some effort addressing the hard work of these critically important questions. Herein, I think, lies the key to a faithful and thriving church, congregation, and Christian. You probably won't find much made of it in the books and the programs that are aimed at church vitality, but I believe it to be, though less glamorous, even more foundational to our continued life and witness. It is in addressing these questions that we come to the great decision that lies before us. Are we for God or are we for ourselves? And by extension, do we exist for God's purposes or do we exist for our own? Are we giving our allegiance to the triune God of creation or to one of the pantheon of worldly false gods? Are we seeking to magnify God's eternal glory that exists both within us and without? Or would we rather manufacture our own inferior vain glory? To what extent are we willing to acknowledge God's perfect wisdom? Or would we rather spend our time, our talents, and our treasure trying to change, to modify, to improve on the handiwork of the author of all creation. How we answer these questions necessarily informs and incites us to live out the conclusions that we arrived at. And I think this is where the connection with our New Testament reading this morning is made. For all the sorts of traits that the author of Hebrews rattles off here in the opening verses of the 13th chapter, they are outward expressions of inward conviction. These behaviors must, for the children of God, be undergirded by a belief system that is derived from the responses to the hard questions the Lord, through his prophet Jeremiah, puts to the people at a time when they are in a season of tests and trials. The answers given, at least from a great many of the Hebrews, and especially those in positions of authority and privilege among the Hebrews, seems to have, at the time, been unsatisfactory. They were to endure consequences for the choices that they made. Well, we too face the prospect of consequences for the choices that we make. So let us then soberly, solemnly, carefully consider how we are going to respond. The Israelites went after worthless things and became worthless themselves. Do we want to do the same? God's chosen people gave up on maintaining a relationship with the God who had set them free from their captivity of slaves. Do we want to do the same? More and more of our friends, our neighbors, and our countrymen have seemingly done so. Is this a better way? Or are we giving up the better way in pursuit of something inferior? 
I'll let each of you be guided by the Spirit to reach your own decisions, even as I pray that they will be those which most align with the will of God for his people. And I'll pray that both individually and corporately, we will be able to live out our calling in a manner that hearkens to that encouraged of the early followers of the way of Christ. This is, I believe, the most effective antidote to the epidemic of church malaise, the most urgent challenge and opportunity that will determine the future of all congregations, namely, opening ourselves and allowing ourselves to be led by the Spirit of God to be the people of God, the body of Christ that we have from the beginning been created and intended to be to His eternal glory. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.